you very much. Record. There we go. So, uh, miracles and the Old Testament, uh, a nice small subject for a 20 minute talk. Um, when you uh, talk about miracles uh, as a philosopher, the character that comes to the fore of the discussion uh, still is uh, this chap, David Hume, a Scottish philosopher from the 18th century, who uh, notoriously defined a miracle as a violation of the laws of nature. Uh, it makes it that sound um, somewhat uh, disreputable for God uh, to work such violations of, of nature. That must be 17... Uh, hmm, interesting one. <laughs> uh, there's obviously a keystroke missing there somewhere. <laughs> uh, I'm going to propose a, an alternative definition of a miracle to start us off with. And that is uh, a little longer, but I think a little more adequate. And it is that a miracle is an event wherein a, a created reality achieves an end, a goal, that lies beyond its inherent, inherent nature, beyond its uh, created capacities. And that is best explained as being caused, whether directly or indirectly, by a special application of God's power, and which therefore will signify something about God's character uh, or his purposes. It will reflect the nature of the God who works that miracle. Now, miracles, it's generally agreed these days by philosophers, do not uh, break or contradict laws of nature. Uh, this is a quote uh, from this textbook on philosophy of religion, Reason and Religious Belief. So if we assume that the water has been turned into wine, and that's a New Testament example, as the result of direct divine activity, then those scientific laws leading us to believe that water does not turn into wine under any set of natural conditions have not been rendered inadequate. What's been rendered inadequate is the belief that all events can be explained adequately in terms of natural laws. Unless it can be demonstrated that supernatural causal activity is an impossibility, we can claim to have both the exception and the, the rule, the law of nature. However, few philosophers today believe that God's existence or ability to intervene directly can be shown to be impossible, and accordingly few philosophers today claim that miracles are impossible. As uh, J.P. Morland and William Lane Craig put it, given a God who creates the universe, miracles are evidently possible. Basically, if you believe in a God, you can believe in miracles. Uh, only to the extent that one has good grounds for believing atheism to be true could one be rationally justified in denying the possibility of miracles. In this light, arguments like those going back to David Hume for the impossibility of miracles based on defining them as violations of the laws of nature are vacuous. 
Now, I'm going to start off with a general argument about belief in Old Testament miracles and then look at some more specific things that could be said about particular Old Testament miracle claims. But I think there's a kind of general argument for the believability of the miracle claims in the Old Testament that Christians would hold from the authority of Jesus. And an outline of that argument might go something like this. That first of all, there's sufficient reason for us to believe that Jesus was a reliable source of information about the trustworthiness, or otherwise, of the Jewish scriptures. Secondly, that there's sufficient reason to believe that Jesus held that the Jewish scriptures are trustworthy. Uh, I jotted down a whole load of uh, New Testament references there to back that up. Thirdly, it follows that therefore we've got sufficient reason to believe that the Jewish scriptures are trustworthy. If you buy into those premises, then you have to buy into that conclusion. The Jewish scriptures make various claims concerning the literal occurrence of miraculous events, from which it would follow that we've got sufficient reason to believe in the occurrence of those events. Now, of course, this all hinges on whether you buy into the view of Jesus and the historical data about his view of the Old Testament scriptures that that argument's based upon. But if you're a Christian, you certainly do. And so this would follow through to the end there. But I'm going to take a sort of not only but also approach, a belt and braces approach, and see well, what could be said on a case-by-case basis about some of the miracles, at least, in the Old Testament. And let's look at uh, creation, at the Exodus account, and at uh, fulfilled prophecy, some examples of fulfilled prophetic knowledge. <coughs> Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created. This is the the biggest, grandest, and first fundamental miracle in the Bible. God created all of this out of nothing. Well, what could be said about that on independent grounds other than just the fact that it's in the Old Testament? Well, I think quite a lot. For example, here's one argument that you might mount taken on the basis of contemporary scientific knowledge of Big Bang Theory, that the universe has a finite past, that it had a beginning. If you trace the sequence of physical events in history, you'd get back to a beginning, a first physical event. But all physical events, certainly in our experience, have at least one cause outside and independent of themselves. And it follows from those that therefore the first physical event had at least one cause outside and independent of itself. Now, if you buy that, it has some very interesting consequences because then you can point out that the cause, fourthly here, of the first physical event can't have been a physical event. We're talking about what caused the first physical event, after all. So it would follow from that that the first physical event had a non-physical cause. But what sort of thing could that be? Well, you could argue that it would have to be something personal. It would have to be what philosophers call an agent cause or a personal cause. Because the only other type of non-physical Reality that we know of are abstract objects which don't enter into causal relations with anything. Uh, things like the number two 
if you're a Platonist about numbers. Or, you know, the number two doesn't cause anything, it's just an abstract object. If it causes something, a person is the only thing that falls into that category we've got left. Which gets you to the point of saying, okay, there was a first physical event, it had a cause, that cause was non-physical, it was personal. It's beginning to sound a lot like Genesis 1 verse 1, is a very reasonable thing to say. And if that is a reasonable thing to say, then that sets a, a backdrop against which miracle claims become a lot more uh, a priori acceptable. You'd still want to ask, is there any reason to believe the claim? But you can't dismiss them as impossible without considering the evidence for them. Because if there's a God, and if there's a God who created the whole universe, surely he's got enough power to turn water into wine occasionally, or whatever. So let's look at the Exodus account. What would we say about the Exodus story? Uh, Science Daily uh, website, which is a good website for uh, reporting various news stories about science, had this story recently. Uh, a new computer modelling study by researchers at the National Centre for Atmospheric Research in the University of Colorado at Boulder shows how the movement of wind, as described in the book of Exodus, could have parted the waters. A strong east wind blowing overnight could have pushed water back at a bend where an ancient river merged with the coastal lagoon. With the water pushed back into both waterways, a land bridge would have opened at the bend, enabling people to walk across. And as soon as the wind dies down, the waters would have come back again. The new story goes on to note that other researchers have focused on a phenomenon known as wind set-down, in which a particularly strong, persistent wind can lower water levels in one area while piling up water downwind. Wind set downs have been widely documented, including an event in the Nile Delta in the 19th century, when a powerful wind pushed about five foot of water up and exposed dry land. The Bible itself mentions that God performed this miracle by a strong wind. So modern scientific studies seem to show that that kind of event is at least possible even without invoking a miracle, as it were. The miracle would be that it happened just at the right moment when the Egyptians were coming after them and they needed to get across to safety. And then crossing the River Jordan later on, coming into the Promised Land at the end of the Exodus account, it says in Joshua, and also you can reference this in Psalm 77 in a poetic form. Now the Jordan's in flood during harvest. Here's a photo of the Jordan in flood during harvest. Yet as soon as the priests who carried the ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam, which we think is here. Uh, while the water flowing down the sea to the Dead Sea was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho into the Promised Land. Well, Colin Humphreys, a scientist, reports that in 1927, for example, there was an earthquake which caused a mudslide near Damia, precisely the place we believe to be ancient Adam. And these mudslides temporarily stopped the flow of the River Jordan. Such cutoffs have been reported at various times. Here's a photo uh, from 1957. You can see here 
uh, a mudslide that partly dammed off the flow of the Jordan but didn't completely dam it off on that occasion. Um, we know this is an earthquake area, ties in very nicely with the, the story of conquering Jericho and the walls coming toppling down as well, of course. What are the ten plagues of Exodus? Uh, let me refer you to this book, The Miracles of Exodus, a scientist's discovery of the extraordinary natural causes of the biblical stories by Colin Humphreys, who I just quoted. And he says that we've got good natural scientific explanation for all ten plagues, which follow a logical connected sequence of natural events that's highly consistent with the biblical account. Again, this is a, a peer-reviewed scientific journal article from uh, the Journal of Biology and Medicine, Yale University, from 2008. Let me just read you a bit from the abstract. We're offering a unifying causative theory of the Old Testament plagues. We propose the root cause to have been an aberrant El Nino, uh, southern oscillation uh, teleconnection. That's a climate uh, anomalies being related at large distances, that basically means. Um, that brought unseasonable and progressive climate warming, which in turn initiated a serial uh, catastrophes of the biblical sequence. And that they also note in the uh, abstract there that located beyond the boundary of this focal of climate change in the land of Goshen, where the Hebrews were as slaves, would not have been similarly affected, again, as the Bible claims. Uh, Professor Kenneth Kitchen, who is an Egyptologist, points out the way in which uh, the symbology of uh, Egyptian religious beliefs would have been uh, sort of attacked, as it were, and undermined by this sequence of events that's recorded in the Exodus, the way in which the plagues are actually a theological critique of the Egyptian worldview. I'll skip over there. Let's look at... Um, I mentioned this the other week when looking at Old Testament archaeology, but you've got the, the story of uh, Hezekiah, who uh, rebelled against the king of Assyria, and got it into some hot water. And this is the, uh, the seal belonging to Hezekiah. And uh, we looked at some of the fortifications, like this wall and the, the tunnel that he built to secure the water supply, knowing that Sennacherib and his army were invading the land and going to try and come and get him. Well, uh, two kings, two chronicles, Isaiah 37, all record that God said that he would make Sennacherib fall by the sword of his own land... I will defend this city, Jerusalem, and save it for my own sake and my servant David's sake. So this prophecy that God said, I will save it and Sennacherib will die by the sword of his own land, is multiply attested by three different sources. And we get not only the biblical account of Sennacherib laying siege to Jerusalem, and then an angel of the Lord coming, killing all of the troops and him withdrawing in disarray, but in Sennacherib's prison here, we have the account of that same campaign from the uh, Sennacherib side of it. And it's very interesting that uh, he kind of breaks off the account. He says, I took this city, I took that city, I took the other city, I divided the land up to various people, I surrounded Jerusalem, I hemmed them in, I went home. Hang on a minute. You know, ancient kings don't tend to record their defeats. But it is interesting that this account um, doesn't exactly directly back up 
what the Bible says happened, but it does correlate very interestingly with what the Bible says happened. And then the violent death of Sennacherib, as prophesied by Isaiah, is recorded both in Kings and Chronicles and Isaiah, multiple attestation again, and also in two different Babylonian accounts. For example, the annals of Eshadon, the third son of Sennacherib, says, My brothers forsook the gods, turned their deeds to violence, plotting evil behind my back, committed unwarranted acts to gain the kingship. They slew Sennacherib, their father. Or the destruction of Tyre. Ezekiel, in about 565 BC, prophesies against Tyre, a city-state here. We know that the book was completed by the 6th century BC because we've got it in stone tablet form, uh, according to Ralph uh, Muncaster there. And there's this long prophecy about what's going to happen to Tyre and Sennacherib, and uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, sorry, Nebuchadnezzar is going to come against it, uh, it's going to sack the place, uh, the whole town's going to be thrown into the sea, according to the prophecy, and scraped clean, and fishermen will dry their nets there in the future. It's just going to be desolated. What did happen? Well, a quarter of a century after the prophecy was made, Tyre was besieged by Nebuchadnezzar for 13 years, who took the main city of Tyre in 573 BC. But during the siege, some citizens of Tyre relocated to an island offshore, about half a mile offshore. And about 250 years later, Alexander the Great wanted to attack the now island city of Tyre. Having no navy, he used the rubble from the old mainland city and slave labour from the surrounding nations to build this causeway out from the mainland to the island. To obtain enough material for that causeway, which now through uh, you know, building up sand dunes and so on, has become larger than originally, but to obtain enough material to build out there, the mainland Tyre city was scraped clean. And it is now used as a spot for fishermen to dry their nets.